Welcome to Building Vibrant Communities, a podcast for anyone interested in supporting and being part of the future success of our cities and towns. From downtowns and high streets to main streets and small towns, this podcast covers a range of topics, including activating public spaces through placemaking, main street small business success and growth, community building and fundraising, and much, much more. You'll hear from Main Street directors, city officials, property owners, small businesses, designers, architects, artists, entrepreneurs, and urban thinkers about what the future of our cities and towns may hold and together can build vibrant, inclusive places for all. This podcast is a collaboration of team members of Patronicity and Bench Consulting from across the country. This series will feature Barbara Lash in Michigan. Jonathan Burke in Boston, Ibrahim Varachia in Oakland, Mahela Clayton in Michigan, and me, Bridget Anderson, here in Indiana. Thanks for joining us. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Building Vibrant Communities. Again, I'm your host, Bridget Anderson, joined by Jonathan Burke. Burke, how's it going? Good. Thanks, Bridget. How are you? Good. I'm excited to be joined by another Bostonian. Um, her name is Deborah Fries, and she uh, is an author, entrepreneur, social activist. Um, mm. And in 2013, she actually co-founded the Boston Impact Initiative. It's a place-based impact investing fund that seeks to create systematic shifts in opportunity for um, urban communities. And I actually got to hear her speak here in Indiana at the Indiana Prosperity Summit, where she talks specifically about social capital. Uh, so thanks so much, Deborah. Welcome. Thank you. It's lovely to be here with you guys. Yeah, I was super inspired um, by your presentation um, about social capital. And so one of the things um, you know we do um, in our work is try to um, help individuals and communities understand what their social capital is, right? What is your network? How can you use that network um, to either maximize investment or just share ideas or actually make real change happen? And so can you explain what you think social capital is and how it plays a role in community development? Sure. So um, I understand social capital from, so I have a background in sort of complex adaptive systems and systems thinking. And so when I think about social capital, I think of it as the ecosystem of relationships and shared values out of which trust um, and the opportunity to work together arises. And that may be a direct relationship, like I know this person, or it may be an indirect relationship, like that person went to my school, so I trust them, right? So there's all of these both very direct, uh, tangible, my uncle, my cousins, my neighbors, my, my classmates, and then the indirect, which is, oh, if you live in this neighborhood, you're more trustworthy. If you went to that school, you're more trustworthy, and so on and so forth. And so in systems thinking, a system is stronger, healthier, and more resilient the more connected it is to itself. And that gets really interesting when we look at the question of healthy and resilient community, which is how connected is the system to all of itself? And if we look at social capital without intervention, we're going to find clusters that are often mutually exclusive. So you're going to find the cluster of people, like if we take Boston, Jonathan, right? Like Beacon Hill is very yeah. different than Roxbury. Every single um, it's a city you know, of neighborhoods. 
Yeah. And if, if we look at, again, I, you know, I'm lucky to have gone to Harvard Business School. Now, all of a sudden, the door opens to me to anybody else who went to Harvard Business School. If you are part of a community that has a web of relationships within it, but not outside of it, which is much the case in the city of Boston, which is known to be a very segregated city, um, then while you may have strong ties in clusters, you have weak ties between clusters. And that makes the system not resilient. And so when you think about social capital, which is who do I know, who do I have access to, what doors will open for me? The question becomes in community development, how do we break out of those clusters and build strong ties and more ties between and across? And so for many of us as individuals, that means if I like passively follow the social ties that I have, there are gonna be sort of bounded closed circles um, that make it very difficult for us to get out of the situation that we're in in Boston where you have an incredibly unequal, economically unequal city. Um, and so when you look, go back to systems thinking, you say healthy system is connected to more of itself and the more diverse the ecosystem it is, the healthier and more resilient it is, it means that we have to start following our social ties in directions that we haven't before. And, and what that means for entrepreneurship, which is my territory, is you know when somebody's bootstrapping a business, they rely on their social capital, they rely on some financial capital, they mostly rely on social capital. They ask their uncle for friends and family money, they uh, do first sales to their cousin, they ask their neighbor to be their accountant, and so that's how they get off the ground. When you have a community like the city of Boston and many of our urban environments where one part of the city has been stripped of financial capital and power and another part of the community has that in abundance, then it becomes near impossible for those folks who don't have access to financial resources, knowledge capital or other professional resources to get out of that closed loop that they're in. So in community development, we need to start creating social capital across those clusters. Connectivity is something really powerful. And I think that's ultimately, you know, why we work, do the work that we do is that we want people to make those connections. Um, your work with the Boston Impact Institute is about increasing access to funding. And, you know, one of the things you just mentioned is there are the haves and the have nots. And so when we're talking about investment in development, how do you ensure that the have nots and um, those trying to cultivate that sense of connectivity um, really have a voice in that, um, in that development? So I think there's sort of um, a classical or convention, what, conventional way that's approached and that's not working well. Um, and then some other ways we could think about it, right? So conventionally, those who have out of the kindness, generosity, and good intent want to help those who don't have and impose their solutions on them. And one of the things that I learned from a mentor of mine named Peter Block, um, he once said to me, um, help is an act of aggression. And I was like, whoa, that is, you know, I was working in international development at the time. I was like, I don't, I mean, like all we're doing is trying to help. We're trying to help in South Africa and Zimbabwe and Brazil. And what do you mean? And, and he was looking at it upon the, the helper says, I have the resources and the answers. The helpee is a victim and doesn't. And therefore I bestow my wisdom and my solutions upon that helpless recipient. 
Um, and that is the act of aggression, to not see and recognize the wisdom, the intelligence, the capacity that those who have, are in the have not category have, and who know better than we possibly could, who are trying to help what their needs are. Um, and so when we go into, I'll give you an example from our own backyard, you know, you know, people look in, again, the lower income areas of Boston, and they see all these check cashing places, and say, we got to get rid of check cashing. And interestingly, we did this in partnership with the Boston Ujima Project, another community fund that we're involved with here, um, asking community members, what do you need? What do you want? And of course, they don't like check cashing, but they don't want it gone. They want equitable check cashing or check cashing. They may, ha may have some governance structure. They, they, we need that. Given the structure, economic structure where we live, you take that away. You're taking something away that we need. You ought to change the structure. But in the meantime, let us tell you what we need. And, and one of the things that made us change our structure, um, we were looking at making an investment in a private equity fund that does uh, real estate development, equitable real estate development, great fund, great organization. Um, and it had a set of investments inside of it. And I was smart enough to ask one of my community development friends who was involved in real estate justice, um, hey, what do you think of this? And they said, actually, one of the investments that's in that portfolio is something that our people are protesting. And very quickly, we sort of withdrew our investment and said, we don't ever want to be on the wrong side of the table from activists. And the only way we're going to solve that is making sure that activists and community members are the ones governing our decision making. And we took, we changed the structure, our governance structure. We made our board majority governed by community-based organizations. And any investment that we do has to go through that group in order to assess is this, are we on the right side of the table or the wrong side of the table? So I think it's essential that we change who has voice in the governance, even of financial decisions and investments. So you're talking a bit about the social capital and then how it's sort of dictated based on geography and where you live in a city and how Boston's a city of neighborhoods. And I think um, just anecdotally, I went to uh, Canada on a few trips a couple of years ago and I remember speaking to some urban planners from Toronto and they had just gone on a trip to Boston and they were absolutely shocked by how redlined the city still is. And I guess somebody who's lived in the, in the city of Boston for 12 years, you kind of know it's there, but you don't notice it every day because it's just, it's your surroundings, right? You, it exists every day. Um, in the current environment, in the current climate, uh, where we're sort of taking a look and, and obviously we do a lot of, we do a lot of our work in, in the space, in physical space and space and changes and space improvements. What do you think are some of the big sort of things we can do now as we're taking a very holistic approach to how are we thinking transportation, how are we thinking public space in Boston and different cities across the country that we can kind of start to do during this process because essentially people are looking at this as well, everything's on the table, right? So what are some of the best ideas we can implement and how can we implement them tomorrow, essentially? I think that um, the, the question of power is one of the most essential questions, right? Which is who is making decisions and whose voice matters. So, so whether we look at transportation or the disposition of vacant lots by the city or the way the PPP program is being distributed, all of these things are a question of, I think it goes back to that thing, the helpers and the helpies, which is if none of the population that is being left behind is involved in the design and the distribution of these programs or just, you know, the design of transportation, um, we're going to keep getting more of what we've got. 
right? I mean, that's the, I think that's in theory the idea behind you know diversity, equity, inclusion programming, but that's usually just um, in name and not in intent really deeply to say what does it mean to actually change the distribution of power. And so part of it is I think we have to look at um, if we're going to distribute power, right, that's one place in policy, but it's also ownership and control over assets. Who owns land, who owns buildings, and who owns the means of production, who owns business. Um, and right now, if we're unwilling to explore that, I don't think we're going to see a change. I actually think what's happening right now um, is the same thing that happened when we had the GI Bill and the New Deal, which is an amplification of the racial wealth divide whether it is by intent or by oblivion, um, that communities of color, particularly black communities, um, are being left behind yet again at the very moment that we claim they're to be included, right? So, you know, uh, the uh, research report just came out from the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City that's saying that 87% of the neighborhoods that are most vulnerable to COVID are communities of color. Um, with the Paycheck Protection Program, 90% of women in minority-owned businesses are not gaining access to it. Um, even if we look at our own portfolio, just a small number of companies that we are invested in, about 30 enterprises, 50% of the workers in our portfolio are women of color, but 90% of those who have lost income during the period are women of color. Wow. So these, this is so you asked for the solution. I'm giving you the problem. Um, I, I, you know, to me, I think the answer is at every level, at every stage is look at the room of who, who's in the room when you're designing something and stop because there's no point in going forward. Like if you care about the issue of inequality, there's no point in continuing the conversation if that room doesn't represent the populations that you're attempting to serve because you'll get yet another program that does more of the same. I think you point out so many important things. You know, we at Patronisty are, are we think about, you know, the effect of um, the work we do. We're trying to really um, help communities cultivate that on their own, give them tools and technologies to do that. Uh, but the level of technical assistance that, um, we need to provide sometimes it feels like that would uh, that it's unequitable right and so you know one of the things that I always think about when I'm talking with a project or an individual in community who's trying um, to do something or to do something different is to talk about um, who have you talked to in that community um, and really trying to be explicit about you know yeah, sure. You sh you need um, the buy-in from those power brokers, absolutely. But have you talked to the local artists next door about what they want and how they see things? And so, really, one of the things that we that I think a, a lot about in um, in in our work is we use technology to to make it easy for people to invest. And so, we're always constantly thinking about ways um, to dynamically engage the community in solving those problems. Um, Anyway, that just inspired me to to share that our approach there. Um, I do think it's important that we talk about the current situation. The COVID nineteen crisis is changing our our behaviors in some ways. Um, you know, your data is startling, um, and it it 
you know, to some point makes me feel a little sad. Um, but in some areas you're seeing some trends towards localism where people are paying attention because, you know, neighbor Jim also owns uh, the barbershop and, and those kind of connections um, are really are coming to the forefront for some people in some, in some communities. And while we don't know the long-term effect of what's happening, what are some things that you're seeing and specifically how has that impacted your work? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's, this is such a paradox, this moment in time where there's all these things that are obviously devastating. And what I was just saying about, you know, wow, I think where we're headed is more structural inequity. And on the other hand, an entire progressive platform is happening overnight, right? Like, I mean, we are you know, there's like universal basic income, a, you know, sliver of that is happening. Medicare for all is happening in certain ways, you know, releasing detainees is happening. Prisoners being released, like eviction protection, utility shutoff protect, like, it's like, and then of course what's happening with the environment is it get, I have a red fox in my backyard in Boston down, I'm, oh. I'm in the city, you know, like, so, you know, so, so clearly what we're showing is that we have a capacity under whatever the right circumstances are to behave in an equitable way with people on the planet. It's possible. Um, the fact that there's an issue of political will that makes most of us look sort of maybe more darkly at the future, what we do with that, you know, is another issue, but it's, pos it's possible. And when I look at my local community, so I live in a neighborhood of Boston called Jamaica Plain, which is of course a very community oriented neighborhood, but you know, we have this, and, and this is happening all over the country, a really vibrant mutual aid network that popped up immediately. So I don't, I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but a platform where neighbors can offer each other goods and services. So I can ask, hey, I need somebody to walk my dog and I can offer, you know, capacity to deliver fresh garden greens out of my garden, right? So, so we have a capacity to take care of each other and move things that have been living in transactional culture back to relational culture where they belong, which they certainly belong in at a neighborhood level. Now, what does that mean in terms of business and enterprise? Both and, right? There are some things that we've made only available through consumerism that don't need to be available through consumerism that can be available through mutual exchange and shared concern. Um, and included in that, I mean, I'm looking at the, the bookstore in our neighborhood. She just, you know, she just moved from a small footprint to a big footprint location and she reached out and everybody came in and helped every, you know, people, she's like opens the store one day a week. So people can reserve online, buy the gift cards. I mean, there's a lot of attention being paid very, very locally, which, you know, as a localist myself, I think gives us so much insight into the future possibility. Um, which is like, what does it really look like to say, I actually want to source as much as I can from my local neighborhood, because we are deep, we, we are in this together, we're deeply in this together. Um, but that's not possible in every neighborhood, and especially those neighborhoods that have been disinvested. And so this is this combination of um, individual citizens stepping forward to be as attentive and generous with each other as they can, which I think is what we're seeing, which is by the way, what we see every time there's a crisis. The first thing that you see is local people stepping forward and taking care of each other. And then often the big system comes in and says, don't do it that way and we'll do it and, and we professionalize it and take away 
that innate generosity that we have. Um, but one part is this, the innate response is to take care of each other. And then the second thing that has to be is resources need to flow to where they're needed most, not where they've already accumulated. And how do we design policy, and in our case, finance, which is what we focus on. How do you design financial instruments that do that, which is the opposite of what financial instruments were intended to do. Um, and that has a lot to do with our particular structure and how we think about risk and return. That's what we need to start doing is to say, we're not starting out on a level playing field. Um, so step forward and step beyond, especially if you're coming from a place of affluence or abundance. You talked about a point in there too, about sort of how you're able to support your local businesses and your local community and we had an interesting conversation about two weeks ago on a different podcast of talking about it was, it was six, was it six minutes to toilet paper? Bridget, was that the comment? Yes. Yep. How essentially if you're able to design your systems and your neighborhoods to allow people to have access to all of those things that they might need, toilet paper is a big thing right now, especially in these current climates. Um, it, it helps you sort of physically at least set up a neighborhood that is more equitable and encourages those smaller community-based businesses where, and I forget the exact numbers on this, but traditionally a higher percentage of the revenue that's coming into that small business is staying within the community versus a large family dollar, Walmart, that sort of thing, where those funds are actually going back to the corporate office and then being dispersed out to the rest of the country from there. Yeah. No, I mean, circulating dollars locally is essential to wealth building. Yeah. I mean, and this is part, part, of, part of the distinction that we've talked about between income and wealth. And a lot of economic development, community development focuses on income, it focuses on jobs. And often when it's looking at disinvested community, it's focusing on entry level jobs, which don't change the poverty profile. When it's about wealth, which is again, that ownership over assets, which means that the dollars are staying local because there's some ownership that's occurring. Um, it's totally transformative. I mean, to me, that, that is, you know, the, the most effective thing we can do, I'll just say within the confines of capitalism, um, because there are other things that we could do beyond capitalism, but maybe we won't go there in this podcast, um, that, that would really allow that profile, uh, that wealth profile, poverty profile to be different. Yeah, I think ownership is so important. I love that, that, um, that you mentioned that. I know one of the things that... Um, you know, we talk a lot about um, getting individuals to feel that connection to a, a placemaking project um, and then feeling that, that, that they belong, right? And that sense of belonging um, is really, um, it's interesting because we are more connected than ever. And then, and at the same time, you know, the, the rates of isolation and loneliness um, just continue to rise. And currently as we are physically isolating from each other, um, that's the case. What, if you could share um, what, what should we be thinking about as we kind of move forward um, in our new public spaces? Um, what would you wish or hope um, our public spaces can do to continue to provide that sense of belonging, knowing that, that the universe is, is changing? Are there anything, any suggestions you have or anything that you've seen? I mean, I, I think, I guess there's sort of two clusters for me. One is structural and one is so, so public spaces it's, you know, food. I mean, there's the thing about growing food, especially for me as an urban gardener and um, as having a portfolio that has a lot of urban food projects in it. 
Um, there's something about the relationship of care between humans and a place when there's this long arc of, of you know, and whether it's food or like, for example, like fruiting trees, for example, right? Anything that has um, that time and observation that when we are growing food or planting things and we have a relationship to that, so it's not just, oh, that's beautiful. It's, wow, we've been harvesting from this place. And, and maybe we've planted it and we've involved our children in it and our grandparents in it and bringing forth a lot of community wisdom. So, you know, every parcel of community space that can be used for food is one thing that I think is extraordinary in having people have a sense of belonging. Um, a structural thing is community land trusts. So when I think about if, it, if that's not public space, that's community owned space, which is different than let's say municipally owned space. But when we think about what does it mean when the underlying land is owned and controlled by a community land trust, which means they have a say over its use and its disposition and that inhibits speculation and gentrification. And they know that. And then there can be a sense of belonging because it's like, we actually can prevent things from happening here that don't belong. And we can call in things that do belong. And you know, the Dudley Square uh, Neighborhood Initiative, which is fairly well known nationally around having this extraordinary community land trust that's been going since the 70s um, with 30 acres, I believe, of contiguous land that the community makes decisions about. Um, that has been absolutely transformative for that area of Boston and the ability for community residents to say, you know, we want more housing. We want us to be in the housing. We now actually want what they did a couple of years ago for the first time. They said, we want commercial space in the community land trust. Um, we want community gardens in the community land trust. I, I think that is an underutilized tool that would be profoundly transformative, especially in urban environments. That's, uh, uh, yes, I'm saying yes to all of this. <laughs> um, I think what you've shared here is really important. And I, I think it's, um, as we're moving towards what we want to potentially see in the future, to really acknowledge some key things. Um, I hate to summarize what you've shared here, but I think it is important to reiterate the connectivity the that we as individuals have to our spaces to each other and also the fact that we function within systems and how can we see ourselves across uh, those those symbiotic relationships and where do we sit in those structures um and i think taking some time to observe where we are and then and locating our place and connection to others um could be a I, hey, maybe I just kind of make my own little nice little social capital web and, and figure out the the shoots and ladders. I'm visualizing a shoots and ladders game of connectivity there. As somebody runs a, a, a finance, a financial vehicle, I've sort of like omitted this part. And I just think it's really critical, which is especially because the world of activism and community organizing often sort of like puts finance to the side and um, doesn't deal with it or makes it antagonistic or just seeks out grant money. And one of the things that I think is essential is if we want to do this uh, placemaking and community control and community voice, we actually have to cross the chasm between community and the financial 
um, sources, uh, sources and uses. And so when I look at the question of who owns and who's financing that ownership, um, I know that it can feel like that, you know, what can we do? We just have to go to the banks and they'll do what they do with us. And, and what's starting to change, I think, in the past five years especially, is more community-controlled capital funds, more community funds in general, whether that's, you know, CDFIs, community development financial institutions, or CDCs, or private funds like ours or the Boston Ujima Project, is that, or, or community credit unions, that aligning the financial capital with the folks who are saying, let's rethink power and control used to sound like something that was impossible. It's not impossible anymore. We are working with 11 different communities around the country who are creating community funds. There are many more out there and that the financial capital has to be non-extractive and it has to be aligned with the idea of building wealth for those who are most vulnerable and using the sources of wealth, whether that is philanthropy or investment, where people are saying, I don't need to maximize my return and make as much money as possible. I actually need to move money in a way where I get to preserve capital, but other people get to build wealth. Mm -hmm. And I just want to confirm that there are many, many philanthropists and investors emerging today who recognize that they want to use their wealth in order to redistribute wealth. Eight years ago when I started Boston Impact Initiative, you couldn't talk about the redistribution of wealth without people sometimes kicking you out of the room. Today, you can talk about it everywhere. And I think with COVID, with people suddenly realizing that this like biologically impartial disease is wreaking havoc in our structurally vulnerable communities, oh my goodness, we who have accumulated wealth do have to do something about that. Yes, the government needs to do something about it and hopefully we'll change that in November, if soon November happens. Um, but, you know, we also, as private citizens who benefited from this uh, lopsided accumulative structure, need to do something about it. And so I think aligning that financial capital with all of these community movements is essential. It's interesting that you point that out. It's almost as if it's become trendy, right? I mean, you saw on Instagram all of these hyper-wealthy athletes and professionals are kind of pushing each other to give back more of their wealth, which um, I was like, on one hand, it's sort of like bragging that they have the capacity for wealth. But at the same time, it's like, well, how do you actually argue with that if they're finding ways to make a difference and re redistribute, you know, that wealth? So I think it's a, that's an interesting thing to point out. And um, as somebody on Instagram, um, seeing all of these wealthy people um, one up each other with how much they're giving back. It's, it's, uh, on one hand, it's, a uh, it's funny to see. Um, and I well, don't think it's something, it, I don't think some, that's something that could have necessarily happened, you know, to your point a few years ago. And we have to take it a step further. And now I'm sort of, um, riding on Anand Girdardas's coattails with the winners take all book saying, okay, and they should give it to community controlled funds where the community decides where it should go. So yeah. they don't retain all the right. power about where they decide, they deem the good to be done. And, and again, so it's like, how do we make sure that right now, money and power go together? How do we disaggregate money and power and have both of them flow differently? Well said, very well said. Love that, yeah, wonderful. 
Well, thank you so much, uh, Deborah, for joining us. We really appreciate your time. And um, we really look forward to um, watching you and what happens with the Boston Impact Initiative and appreciate uh, the opportunity to glean some of your learnings and, and share them. Well, thank you so much for um, inviting me. And Jonathan, it'd be great to cross paths in Boston someday. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we will. I'm surprised we haven't to date. But I'm sure we will. <laughs> Thanks so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Building Vibrant Communities. We hope you were inspired to hear from our guests and learn more about how together we are shaping communities now and in the future. If you or someone you know should be featured on our podcast, let us know. You can tweet us at Patronicity or email us at info at Stay safe and be inspired.